Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I am here with Matt McClellan. Matt is an awesome guy, and we have a killer, killer chat. I think this is a really, really awesome episode. We get into his work with being as an ocean, better off, capsize, loathe, Project 86, and tons and tons more. We get into tons more. I think this is a killer episode, so check it out. second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. Uh, so what's your chain for recording your voice today? Today I'm going uh, from a Shadow Hills monogamma into a uh, UA Apollo twin. Nice. And just a regular old SM7B for the mic. Classic sub. So can you tell me about your background in music? I've been involved with music since I can remember my mom forced me into piano lessons at age three uh wow that's early (laughs) yeah so you'd think i'd be really good at piano but i you know dropped out a few years later the method that i was taking piano lessons is the suzuki method so i didn't learn to read music Mm -hmm. they would give you like a cassette tape and be like hey learn to play these songs so (laughs) i have a pretty (laughs) good ear from that so can't play the piano very well, but uh, I know notes. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, that is what's important once you become a producer. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it helps. So, so where do you go from there? Grew up heavily in the church. Got an Easter basket one year with a Christian music compilation. And it had a song I liked on it. And I f- found out that that was a genre called ska. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I didn't know what that was, but I was like, yep. oh, the supertones. I, I like how this sounds. And then went to see the supertones. And then, yeah, <laughs> went from there. It's, oh, ska. Oh, punk. Oh, metal. Oh, you know, it kind of opened up a can yep. of worms. <laughs> that, 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 that is how it goes. Uh, we, we, my, my friends have a nice uh, joke about when you get into ska, you have a checkered past. I have a very checkered past, very for true, sure. True. A Christian checkered past. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so you get into all the underground music. What happens from there? Grew up as a chubby, nerdy kid. So middle school was tough. And then you start uh, 
you know, moving off into groups in eighth grade and then into high school. And then like all the people that listen to the kind of music I was listening to were all, you know, outcast dorks too. And, you know, that from there you hang out with the skateboarders and, and there you find out about more genres of punk music. And then, you know, that's where you, you start going to shows and you start seeing the scene and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, being bullied, being bullied is a big big part of it <laughs> Not, yeah, I, 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 I 100% agree I mean sometimes I think it's a little chicken or the egg but uh, it, it is that thing so do you play it bad during that time like what, what, what happens yeah um, I, I tried to, to start some bands in high school but my best friend who had gotten the drum set at the same time I'd gotten a bass like it was just us two jamming for years we could never find a guitar player and then after we graduated we started uh jamming with a new friend who came from Alabama and we started a band called Willow which was like a instrumental post rock kind of band and that was a uh, our first real band you know playing shows and such and the guitar player of that band is actually the singer of O Brother now hmm. interestingly enough so you're playing a band how do you end up becoming a producer so i started a it was something i was always interested in I had gotten like a four-track boss recorder. I mean, me and my friends would make funny songs and stuff. I was forced into going to college, sort of, and eventually I was like, I can't do this. I don't want any more school. And I kind of t- started like, you know, recording what I thought were like real things and, you know, getting it better sounding. And uh, eventually I dropped out of college and convinced my parents to let me get some recording equipment at home and started recording local bands for like $25 a song. And by the time I had recorded every band in all the surrounding towns, I had what, what I thought was like a, yeah, a little bit of a name for myself then, but it was very local. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all. But I, I mean, at the same time, you know, like that path is like, I think really is the best path. Like I tell, you know, now that I'm getting, getting older, I like when friends uh, are talking about like, I don't know what to do about my, uh, kids da, da 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 they want to go into music i'm like you know it's better than them going to school like give them some money let them try it and see if it works yeah try it out i got really lucky i've been working at glow in the dark studios with matt goldman since mm-hmm. uh t- january 2009 oh wow that's a long you know, time and uh and for anybody I, not listening I, I think there's a thing with glow in the dark that if you see that drum room it's impossible no matter who you are in the world to not envy it <laughs> it's big. You can play basketball on it for sure. <laughs> so I got lucky. My my brother, who plays drums in 68, Michael, he had listed this drum set that he had gotten um, at Guitar Center for very cheap. They said it was a Slingerland. It probably wasn't a Slingerland. So he listed it on Craigslist. Oh, a Slingerland drum set, vintage, for sale. And the person who replies to the Craigslist ad was Matt Goldman. Huh. And I was I had already been recording at home at my parents' house for a year. And I was like, wow. That's a guy that lives 30 minutes away, and if I could get in there, that would, you know, that would be awesome for me. So I went up and met with Matt, and he didn't buy the drum set. <laughs> <laughs> and he also said that he didn't need any interns or anything, but I think my, uh, my business card that I had made made an impression. <laughs> it was uh, like a Beach Boys Pet Sounds parody. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So... So you start working there. How do you start? Are you an intern or what, 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 is, what is the position? I started the way I would recommend for anybody. Clean the toilet. Wow. <laughs> clean the toilet. Make sure everybody's happy. Go get coffee. Sweep the floors. Don't let it get dirty. And uh, 
eventually, like Matt saw that I was, uh, you know, I knew sort of what I was doing. And he taught me like, well, you've been using logic. Like, here's how you do it in Pro Tools. And here's how you do it much faster. And he's pretty good at teaching you. He's one of the fastest editors I've ever met. And Mm. so very early on there, he had me editing things. One of the first things was uh, a couple of singles for the band Anne Berlin, and that was just oh, wow. me being starstruck. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm editing vocals for Anne Berlin. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty rad. So um, you're working there. When does it switch to that you start producing your own stuff? He had let me bring in projects pretty early on, within the first few months. And when it became to the point where I, like I was, you know, working all night because I would do overnight sessions. So mm. I'd be, I would be working from 10 PM until 8 AM, you know, on a session. And then it would be my day to intern and clean. And I would be dead, you know, cause he wanted me there from like 10 to six. Like eventually he was like, Hey, you're too busy to intern and do this anymore. So like, like we'll just ha- cut it there and you can just keep working here. I was like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> nice. So tell me about something that makes uh, Glow in the Dark unique, aside from the basketball-sized drum room. What makes Glow in the Dark unique is it's a large facility, and it kind of seems like a big treehouse, boys-only club, sort of. (laughs) Uh, There's always folks hanging out there that are not, like, directly involved in the the process, and Hmm. It's it could be weird. It's a very like an atmosphere that makes you want to chill out and hang. Basically, mm. that's what I think a lot of people like about it. That and a lot of like cool old gear and stuff. But it's very big and just just a good bro hangout. It's not uncommon to see a guy walking down the hallway in his underwear eating a bowl of cereal <laughs> while someone's <laughs> while someone's tracking drums. You know, because we have the apartment space for the bands there too. Oh wow! And, so, uh, yeah, I'd say the atmosphere probably sets it apart a bit and the relaxedness of the place. Very cool. Tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear you guys have. Early on, I started getting interested in, like, weird, obscure synthesizers and noisemakers. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a little piece there called a Suzuki Omnicord. Hmm, it, yeah, the, uh, yeah. Very it's cool. Like the, uh, it's like the electric equivalent of a, an auto harp, but... Mm-hmm. It can make some really cool sounds. We have a lot of stuff like that. We have a uh, an old Silvertone guitar, which is, I think, the Sears brand from the 50s. And the case it comes in is uh, is actually an amp, too, like a really crappy-sounding amp, mm-hmm. but it's neat, you know. We have a lot of stuff like that like that's really uh, obscure, <laughs> and it, you wouldn't necessarily see any purpose in it without being in the studio and be like, hey, what if we use that thing? Very rad, yeah. Those those, those silver toned guitars with the case amp are, are, are always insane. Sounds so <laughs> crazy. So, what instruments do you play? Well, I have the background in piano, so I mm-hmm. know my way around a keyboard, and that's still probably my primary instrument would be keyboards, but not piano. Uh, and then, you know, getting into punk music and everything, you couldn't play trombone or keys in a cool punk band, so I had to learn bass when I was 14 and and bass has been my primary instrument that I'd say I'm most proficient at since then. I can play power chords on the guitar. <laughs> nice. So we have the saying of the podcast, you know, on like one side you have like your Steve Albini who just gets takes and make comments on the take but doesn't get involved with the songwriting and then you have like your John Feldmans who like fully rewrite the song. Where do you see yourself on that scale? Probably like most people would say, I'm somewhere in the middle. It depends on the band's uh, personal taste and what they expect out of 
the process, you know, if they, if they want the guidance, if they want the extra help, or if it's a, you know, this is our thing, then, then it's your thing. Uh, let them do it. But more often than not, I get bands that come in and they want help with song structure and they're pretty open to, uh, my ideas and such, but it's, you know, it's just on a project by project basis. Nice. What do you think you bring to records most often? I prefer more like structured music with a verse chorus sort of style. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't necessarily force that on people, but I think if they are not writing in that way, I help them, you know, hey, let's make this a little bit more memorable. Like this is a really cool part, but I don't know if anybody's going to remember it, Mm. you know, a year from now. So let's make this the part that gets stuck in people's heads. Uh, that and just obviously like convincing bands to let me do synthesizers on their stuff. I bring a lot of that to the table too. <laughs> that's, nice. That's, that's probably my favorite thing. If the band's open with it, then I do a lot of synth and noisy stuff on albums. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I think there's like a funny thing that like if you're a producer who's more into artsy stuff, you're usually going to do that. But then if you also like pop structures, that usually is also going to rub off on bands. But it sounds like you're uh, putting your feet in both sides of that. Yeah, I mean, it just comes from the musical background. Like uh, I like a lot of different styles of music and I I try to be objective about it and and. really just say you know try to figure out what makes the song good you know aside from the instruments that are playing like if this was on a piano and just a vocal like would it still be a good song Mm. you know just try to like get to the root of what makes it a good song and a good track i I think that's super important what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio practicing way too loud oh that's a good one I usually, and some people are used to this and uh, others are surprised by it, but I usually track drums first and then guitar, and then we'll do the bass after the guitar is done because everybody practices so damn loud that they don't know what they're playing. So I've had this happen several times where the guitar player is playing a C chord or something and the bass player is playing a D and he's like, well, I think it sounds good. That's how I've been playing it. I'm like, well, dude, that's not like... You're not going for like jazz here. You're just playing the wrong note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How loud do you practice? Like really loud. Well, maybe you should turn it down so you can hear what each other's playing. You know, it, it really is a thing. It's it's like that, and then like strumming patterns are just a fucking wreck when people don't oh ab- practice quietly. Absolutely. Yeah, because the, if you're not listening to what the kick drum is playing, you're not strumming the guitar in the right pattern, and uh. Everything sounds great really loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Everything. <laughs> you could play the worst mix ever, but p- play it really loud and it sounds great. Yeah, uh, it's, it's even the same thing. It's like, you know, like when people are like, oh, the band's so much better live. It's like, it's really fucking loud. Just relax. <laughs> yeah, not, very mo- loud. A lot of bands don't play as good as their records sound. I see it every day. <laughs> they need a lot of help in that department. It's true. You know, there's a lot exceptions, of but, you know, there's also that thing of, like, I you hear it way too often. Yeah, it's like live, you're hearing the bass, you're feeling the bass, you know, and you don't get to feel the bass when you're playing quietly, but you get to hear how crappy you are, and that's pretty important. <laughs> I like that. I think you also make a great point about the order of things, like, you know... R&B was why bass went first, and no one adapted when it started to be songs where guitars were more the... Uh, 
main basis for what chords were being playing in R&B, the bass was, and so everybody right. followed that blindly for no fucking reason. It was so dumb. And it's <laughs> amazing to me that young bands still come in thinking we're doing bass after drums, and I'm like, what are you on? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost every time. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a great answer, though. Um, what's a smart thing you see during the recording process that bands do? Um, this is happening more and more, but I love the these kids are getting more into recording themselves and they know the process oftentimes and they have good demos. And like, that's, I think that's really important to come into the studio with the songs fleshed out and even like try to mix it a little bit, make it sound good. So you like, instead of being like, Oh, it's just a demo. It doesn't sound great, but it will later. Like it already sounds great when they come in the studio. And I love that. I, I just recorded a band from Liverpool called Loathe and three of the guys in the band are engineers themselves and they came in with these great demos and they knew exactly how every kick drum every part every single thing you know they had a place for it and mm. that's very helpful because the, the less time you're spending you know trying to figure out how your own song goes the more time you can spend making it awesome I think that that's a great great way of putting it what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Hmm. <laughs> I guess it just depends on the style of music. I I know I'm almost 30 and I'm not going to necessarily agree with how 19-year-olds music should be. When we disagree, I, I I try to find a common ground. I try to see what everybody in the band thinks and uh I'm you know, it's usually trying to find a compromise and something that'll make everybody happy, but I always make it clear like well, don't agree with this because you think I will like it. You have to live with this for the rest of your life. Like after you guys leave, like I'm going to mix it. And then, you know, I have to live with it too, but this is your art. So make sure you like it too. I just try to find a common ground and, and make sure that they're okay with that too. I, th I think, th th think that's a very good way of putting it as well. Let's get into how you feel about some of the modern production tools and stuff. Uh, do amp simulators dash reamping have a role in your productions? Absolutely. I've been reamping since I started at Glow in the Dark. Uh, we've always taken a DI, and, well, we used to do a DI, taken at the same time as the amp signal, and now we do the DI into Pro Tools, out of Pro Tools, into the amp at the same time. So it's uh, if you reamp, it's hitting the same signal path. If you if you know what I mean. Hmm. Interesting. I've, I've actually never heard somebody mention doing that, uh, oddly enough. Yeah, so like, uh, basically... So there's no, would, no delay from the conversion that people feel? Not that I've experienced. Uh, so yeah, I, mean, it's I guess always, it's, pretty, it's pretty minimum, I guess, at this point, too, with technology. Yeah, so basically, you know, we have the two tracks armed, the DI and the amp track, and if you want to change the amp sound, all you do is unarm the DI... Mm -hmm. and and the other track's still armed and it's still going out to the amp and then you for the next track you just mute the di and do the same thing so that way if you ever like before it was like oh we're reamping but we had we recorded this di separate and the the chain is different that way hmm no like, i think uh, this is actually a really great point like if you're recording a di into pro tools uh hang on let me think about it so yeah I, 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 I get what you're saying it's so funny like i've never thought about it uh this way either i mean i'm also not really a big reamper basically like if the 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 output of pro tools like that conversion is always part of the chain then mm -hmm. it's, it's going to sound more similar it'll probably be a small difference anyway 
but mm-hmm. we we keep the uh, the same chain for the whole thing. We always it's so it's always reamping basically. Like from the first time you plug in the amp, it's reamping. Yeah. So uh, so that way you're dialing a tone with a conversion in mind. Right. The sound of the converters and what that DI is imparting on it. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. So how about amp simulators? Do you use those at all? Yeah, I actually have. Uh, if I'm tracking at home or in the B room, um, tracking with the amp on is so loud that you know you can hear it kind of through the wall and you're getting a lot of these bass frequencies. So if I want to make sure that we're getting the parts right, a lot of times I will start off just tracking with the amp sim. And that way we can track it with, with the monitors at a low volume and really hear that what's being played that way you don't hear the rumble of the amp or the cab you know through the wall and everything that is a b- big thing in dialing tone as, as someone with not enough isolation in their between their drum room and their control room it's something i definitely uh have dealt with every day for 10 years yeah yeah how about uh sample dash midi drums in your productions i haven't done a ton of midi drums but samples yeah i've used a lot we do try to keep our drum sounds, you know, very natural, but we always do keep or we take samples of every session. And uh, some things I've learned over the years, a lot of times we'll just use a room sample. Uh, that's a big part of my sound is getting a good room sample and, you know, messing with the decay of it and yeah, making it how I want it to sound. But room samples are really important to me. That's something that shines through a lot in my productions. Kicks and metal, you know, I always have a, a sample in there. There's only been a few records I've done that don't have any sort of sample at all. How about, since you're a keyboard guy, some of your favorite soft synths? I use Omnisphere a ton. Yeah, the best. It's it's got everything in it. I love the Arturia Vintage Synth Mm -hmm. collection, but the small company... uh, That's the Analog Lab one or a different one? Yeah, yeah, the the Analog, like they have the Moog and the Prophet Mm -hmm. and the ARP... Uh, Oberheim, all those sound great. Um, but a smaller company called Rhythmic Robot from England, they make some awesome synths for uh, their contact instruments, and they'll take things that you never thought knew existed. Yeah, then they'll sample them and make you know these awesome sounding synths. So they have one that's like they took old uh, shortwave ham radios and they just took the different squeals and squelches and white noise from that. And that's an instrument. And then they have another one, like the earliest electronic instrument was somebody at like the world's fair or something took electricity and vibrated a tuning fork. So they hmm. sampled that. That's another instrument. And hmm. they just take a lot of these very esoteric, like weird sounds and make instruments out of them. And they're really cool. So if you want to use a weird Soviet drum machine in your production, check out rhythmic robot because they have it. (laughs) I am uh, just went in my to-do list as we speak. So um, I'm always a fan of that type of stuff. Do you master your own records? Rarely. Uh, I don't prefer to. That's just something I've never studied and I'm not confident that I'm the best at it, you know? So if uh, if a band wants me to, I will, but I usually have other people that I recommend to do that because I'm definitely more of a mix guy. Nice. How long does it usually take you, uh, ideally, to record a song, and then how long, ideally, does it take you to mix a song? Recording a song, usually, I'd say two to three days. Mixing, it, you know, it's kind of crazy with mixing. It's just sometimes mixes just come to you, and sometimes you really have to work on them, so... 
Mm. It could be anywhere from a day to a week to get a song mixed up. It just depends on, like, I don't know, how good your brain is that day. It's weird how it happens. Mm. Yeah, I think it's also, yeah, if, if like you're if you're in the headspace to hear that song in that way that day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll listen to something on, you know, the radio or something, and you'll be like, oh, I should have mixed it like that. Like, I did a record mm. last year where I had it done almost, and I went back and remixed the whole thing. I mean, I know the yeah. label wasn't stoked, but I think it came out a lot better <laughs> in the end uh, because of it. I d- d- definitely have been there, and uh, I, as much as I think a lot of the time everybody thinks you're crazy, and, the, and when they hear it back at the end, they usually go, okay, that's the good type of crazy. <laughs> yeah. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Being patient with a band, listening to what they want and need out of the process, and uh, being willing to suggest, like, you know, like, hey, uh, that's not really in the key there. <laughs> you know, or, you know, basically, I've learned a lot of, like, tact from, mm. from Matt and, you know, how to not offend people and how to handle things with grace. Can you give me a little bit more of an example of that? There's a lot of psychology working with bands. You see a lot of different personality types, a lot of different egos, a lot of different types of egos. Like I've learned from Matt, basically, try not to get too heated about things. And at the end of the day, it's their record, and it needs to be done the way they actually want it to be. And if there's an argument within the band, how to mediate that and how to you know, soften the situation and make the air a little bit less, you know, tense. Hmm. Oh, that's definitely one of the most uh, crucial skills there is. Yeah, for sure. Because you, you see some uh, some heated arguments between band members doing this job. <laughs> I, I, I always say it's like, uh, you know, like, despite not having children, when my friends start growing up and their kids start getting in fights, I'm like, I have so much advice. And they're always like, wow, why do you know so much about this? I'm like, I've been breaking up fights for 17 years in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> between children. Um, it's just but, good to do it in a way that, that doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. So if you if a band is having an argument, and even if you side with one guy, like mm. one dude's obviously right. Well, you don't want to be like, dude, listen to him. Like he's mm. right about this. You're dumb. Mm-hmm. That's going to affect the whole rest of the process. Like someone's mm-hmm. going to be scorned. Someone's going to be bitter. Hell, they might quit the band later. You know. So it, it's good to be able to see both sides of the story, and uh, that's something I that I have learned a lot from Matt. Like you, you can't really get a straight answer out of Matt Goldman because he sees both sides of every single thing. Like, well, on one hand, uh, he is right. That note's wrong, but I could see from him, like that note sounds pretty cool. Like <laughs> nice. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. I would say early on getting to hang out with the chariot guys. When I started mm. working there, that was pretty cool to me. And now I know all of them really well. So it's, it sounds kind of crazy. My brother's in a band with the, the singer of that band. But Oh, nice. You know, early on, it was just really cool being able to come up to the studio and see a band I loved recording with a producer I really admired. It was just a super, like, magical feeling <laughs> time, for lack of better words. Uh, yeah, uh, recording-wise, um, I did a record last year with Arun Bali. Uh huh. From Save pre- the Day, pre- previous podcast guest, an awesome guy. Yeah, and that was that was a new thing for me was 
co-producing a record and having someone else's input and uh he was really good to work with and he had really good ideas and it was nice to be able to you know have the load lightened you know and uh have some someone else's opinions in the room too and sometimes sometimes that's annoying but it really worked out for that one i had a lot of fun with that one very cool. Yeah, we talked a bunch about that record, and he said great things uh, when we did that podcast episode. I love that record as well. You guys did a great job on it. That's the one I I, I remixed from. The- oh, is it? <laughs> that's Stretch. really that's really funny. Well, that mix sounds fantastic, man. I mean, particularly oh. uh, th- those tones are are great on that record. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Room was he had some great advice, and he was really receptive to my opinions too. So we with those guitar tones, we really pushed some. <laughs> limits of me like the amp like we used a jmp marshall uh for a lot of that rhythm tone and it was literally just every single knob at 10 (laughs) wow that's that's something i don't think i've ever uh in in all my years i don't think i've ever pushed one of those like that usually it's usually like one step too far it sounds so good on there (laughs) yeah it it just worked out (laughs) nice tell me one of the worst moments you've had in the studio and what you learned from it always wikipedia somebody if they say they're famous oh i like this we had a gentleman come in recently and his manager called and said it was a member of the wu-tang clan hmm and that they needed this catering they needed these like different types of foods and fruit and vegetable trays and all this stuff and they would be in the studio at 10 p.m and then it was gonna be an overnight session and all this stuff. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll make sure to do that. Uh, very, very long story short. This could be a whole episode in itself. This guy, we eventually confronted him because I looked up pictures. I was like, he kind of looks like the guy he says he is. Eventually, I was like, I called Goldman outside. I was like, this guy is not who he says he is. Wow. And he's like, he's like I was like, he's like, what do you, he's like, I kind of got that, uh, that vibe, but what makes you think that? And I was like, well, this is not him. Here's a picture of the guy from the Wu-Tang Clan in a PETA ad, and our guy's been eating chicken wings. And <laughs> so you don't appear in a, in a PETA ad and then yeah, eat chicken yeah. wings. I looked up his management company. They don't exist. Mm. And also, I mean, there's just tons of red flags. I mean, like I'm telling you, this is a really long story. Mm-hmm. But eventually, we confronted the guy, and I was like, hey, uh this isn't who you are. So are we going to get paid for this? And he's like, yeah, I got to run this errand real quick. I'm going to, I'll be back and I'll get your money. And he peaced out. He left. And wow. What's funny is I think somebody in his entourage was onto it because in the, uh, in the office on the computer that they were using and very recent in the search history was, I guess someone found this guy's wallet and Googled his name. And he's been arrested for this like seven times over the past 11 years. Wow. Yeah. Walker Washington. So if you ever get a rapper saying he's from the Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> and, and he's not and is <laughs> Google Walter or Walker Washington. Wow. Look him up. This guy's been scamming studios. And I actually talked to another guy at another studio. In South Carolina, who uh, Bill Reynolds, who uh, dealt with the same thing. So that was definitely wow. the worst experience, was getting duped so hard and feeling so dumb because it was so simple. I could have just Googled the picture, but the whole situation was just so awkward and weird. It's like I didn't know how to handle it, you know? 
That is that that is strange human psychology there. Yeah, <laughs> having to figure out how you're going to confront somebody. Oh my god! Over is... knowing that they're fake. It's definitely one of the weirdest things I've ever had to do. That that is f- fucking crazy. Um, so on a lighter note, let's get into some of your personal tastes. Um, what's a perfect record someone else has made, and what about it makes it perfect? Pinkerton by Weezer is the most nice. perfect record. Nice. What, what, what to you makes it perfect? What makes it perfect is the the tones of the instruments, the musicianship, like the produ- everything about it, the lyrics especially. Like that album has some of the best lyrics, things that anybody can relate to. You know, they're very personal to Rivers, but as a kid, you know, I was like, man, I really feel the same thing. That record, it, it sounds incredible too. It has that like really raw roomy sound and the guitars are not polished at all a lot of out of tune stuff it's just the the whole vibe and rawness of it that's what i love about it yeah it really is it, one one of the vibiest records that still uh the vibe never sacrifices the songs never they it completely adds to the songs let's talk about five of your favorite records over the years and how they shaped your musical growth well first first one i would say would be the Blue Album by Weezer. When I got to high school, I had known about Weezer, but I didn't really know like about the fan base or any of that sort of stuff. And I just saw all these guys who I, was, I thought looked so cool wearing Weezer shirts every day. And I was like, oh, they have glasses like me. Like, I could hang out with folks mm-hmm. that have glasses and like, no one's going to make fun of us. <laughs> you know, then I actually like got the record and like listened to it, and like it actually is like incredible. Like that record's guitar tones, the drums, everything about it. That's a perfect yeah. ten out album. The guitar tone, especially, is really good on that one. And what I've read is it was like a Mesa Mark One with all the tone knobs at zero, but the distor- distortion all the way up and volume it, master volume it like one or two. So. That's what gives it that really weird, squishy blue album sound. <laughs> huh. I, you know, I, I toured Electric Lady, I guess like a year and a half ago. Mm. Um, it's funny. I bike by it on my way home every night from work. Oh, nice. And, uh, it was funny. I, I, I toured it and they showed me, they're, they're like, oh, well, this is uh, the Weezer amp. And it was a uh, Fender Bandmaster. Okay. And I was like... You know, at the same time, the person who's giving us this tour, I'm like, well, I'm like doing the math. He's 20 years old. I'm like, so you weren't born. And that means there's this is information has been passed out from 20 assistants. I'm like, that doesn't sound like a bandmaster. And what you're saying <laughs> sounds much more right. So I'm going with your, 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 your side of it more than that. But uh, it was something like even just standing in that drum room, though, and like hearing the way like a snare snaps, you're like, oh, I get it. Like it's that room sounds very like it's fast and uh punchy i love that second album would be probably pinkerton which we already went over uh, that one mm-hmm. hit me hard emotionally and yeah later when i was paying attention to sonic you know signatures of things like that hit me sonically too like so now just the guitar tone can make me cry not just the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> nice third would probably be 
Clarity by Jimmy Eat World. Very good. Yeah, that, 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 we we have a joke on this podcast that that's uh, that, that's the the uh, ubiquitous one. It's so good, man. Uh, it's, yeah. it's funny. Like when I was a freshman, Bleed American came out, and that one sounded like mm-hmm. the music I'd already been listening to. It was pop punk, and it it just sounded awesome. It, the songs are catchy, mm-hmm. and <laughs> back in the day, like, hey, I want a CD for Christmas. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I asked for the Jimmy Eat World self-titled for Christmas because it wasn't called Bleed American at the time. They had to rename oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot uh, about so that. I was like, Jimmy Eat World. And my uncle, who I barely ever saw, you know, he's not like a close relative, got me clarity. And I was like, what the, what the hell is this? It's not what I asked for. <laughs> <laughs> and then listening to it, I don't think I gave it a great chance until like maybe three years later as like a, a junior or senior in high school. And just uh, I'd gotten a lot more into like uh, different instruments other than guitar, bass, drums, you know, and that one has it's like an old school record. And the liner notes, it'll tell you like, oh, Jim played Rhodes and Farfisa and B3 organ mm-hmm. and Fender guitar. Like they like they name the brands like very old school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, 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 I mean, it's funny. That was a, a definitely a thing that died somewhere in the 90s was saying which brand guitars or specific ones, like when you'd see like Flying V on a record credit. <laughs> right. So, uh, and that, that like got me into a lot of the keyboard world too. I was like, oh, what's a Farfisa? Oh, what's a Moog? Oh, mm. oh, what's a Oberheim? You know, so looking through that and yeah, it was such a great record and it just has, it goes, has so many ups and downs and so many cool parts on it. And I, th- I don't know if they really topped it. They've done great stuff since, but that one, you know, that's their milestone for sure. It's funny. I tweeted this today. Uh, I said, observation, <laughs> Jimmy World's fan-favored records have the least tough drum sounds, yet every record, their drum sounds get tougher and tougher. <laughs> That's true. I don't, I don't know if I like that. Yeah, I, it, it's like an emotional thing for me. It doesn't sound right. Like the the new song, like it's like the drums hit so hard. I'm like, whoa, why are the drums screaming at me when the song's singing to me? I need to check it out. I haven't heard that one yet. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's only two days old as we tape this, so. So uh, that's uh, three albums down. Uh, yes. Fourth. Let's just go back, though, to the old days, like uh, the Postal Service, the only album they have. That one That one really impacted me. That got me into, pro- mm-hmm. into programming. Uh, I remember buying a sampler in, like, 2004 because I wanted to do Postal Service stuff and that's really impacted me. I still use a lot of those same techniques I learned as a, a 17 year old, just cause I was trying to emulate the postal service. So that's a great record. That's another 10 out of 10. I could go back to, for the fifth one to something like everybody knows and recognizes a great album. So I was going to say the downward spiral by nine inch nails, mm, but yeah, that's, that's a big one for me too, but I'm going to go with a newer one called uh, death magic by a band called health. That's the, uh, my favorite record of the year. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. Man, yeah, I, I, I love that band. I had loved Health for a while because mm-hmm. uh, I love Tim and Eric. And Oh, yeah, that's right. They did that thing. Eric yeah. directed one of their the music video. videos, and it's very dark, and it's just like so mm-hmm. like horror-themed. And I was like, man, this is a dark band. So I checked out their new music, and it was like it, it used to be very lo-fi and the new thing was much more like industrial and like programmed and had this dance vibe to it. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And 
saw them live at a small bar here in Atlanta called The Earl. And honestly, like one of the best shows I've ever been to, just being in like a 200, maybe maybe 100 cap room and seeing these guys just like rip your face off with these like dance yeah. songs. Yeah. That was incredible. So I want to say health is number five because like yeah, listening listening to that record and like trying to even get close to some of those sounds they have has been like my new challenge. I'm like, how do you get a keyboard to sound like that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's just a really I, I think even to the record before like songs like Die Slow, like the things mm-hmm. they do with envelopes of like instruments is just so much different than everybody there's a really great uh podcast episode to check out uh it's uh no effects with jesse cohen the singer is on that episode he talks a lot about the process and what they do oh cool it's a great episode yeah i highly recommend that that's awesome but yeah that that band live too is also like just i I, the first time i saw was the same thing like a real small venue in brooklyn before they got popular and i was just like you have to be kidding me like this is the best live band i've seen in forever oh yeah it's incredible they half half the time the bass player wasn't even playing bass he was just playing yeah pedals (laughs) or or screen has screaming into a microphone and just turning knobs yeah it's fucking awesome i want to know what you're doing it sounds incredible (laughs) his twitter account's really funny too oh nice Tell me about three of your favorite producers. Let's go with Mac Oldman to, you know, to start it off. He, yeah, in a lot of ways, got me where I am. His process for everything is really cool and really informative. Uh, and his mixes sound cool. He, he's made a lot of great records yeah. that I, I listened to before I knew the guy. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the stuff he did with Copeland. Oh, yeah. That was a big deal in high school for sure. Nice. I love Goldman stuff. Uh, I love him as a guy. John Feldman. I think everybody mm-hmm. would agree he's amazing. It's kind of funny because I, you know, earlier I was talking about the checkered past. Uh, mm-hmm. so I got the Christian music sampler and the you know Easter basket, and it mm-hmm. has some ska song on it. But like, the reason I liked that ska song is because I was playing Tony Hawk, and there was that Goldfinger song Superman in Tony Hawk. You know. Ah, and I was like, so I get yeah, this CD yeah. and I'm like, oh, this sounds like that song from Tony Hawk. So let me look a little further. That must be a whole genre. So you could even say that like my gateway to all of this was playing Tony Hawk and hearing John Feldman's band. <laughs> very, very awesome. And I just think that his productions just sound so good. Like his the last yeah. the last used record. Just I love how everything in it sounds. It just squishes together nicely like the drums have a really peaky transient but like the room is really quick and the bass is not too like metallic it's like it's just he's really good and i love what he brings to the table yeah it's funny i didn't listen to that used record i'm gonna have to do that uh when we get off from this because i i should totally do that since those records he did with them are some of my faves yeah you should check out the song cry it's one of the best hooks it's so good i on my to-do list now. Brendan O'Brien. Oh, yeah. He's local to you guys, right? He was. He uh, moved out to L.A., I believe, in uh, mm. 2011 or 12. But, yeah, mm. Brendan O'Brien, man, he just records. A, his mixes sound incredible. And B, he has a lot of things that I try to do. Like, I, 
just the little tiny headphone candy sprinkles he mm. he uses a lot. He's the reason I bought a Yamaha Tenorion, which is a weird Japanese mm-hmm. square shaped yeah. synthesizer and uh with like weird lights on it, right? Yeah, yeah, it lights up and it sounds cool. I learned that uh Brendan O'Brien would instead of making a click track for the drummer to play to, he would create like a beat and like a little pattern on the Tenorion and get like a groove with that and then they would like change the way the drummer plays instead of just playing to a clave on you know every quarter note i thought that was incredible and i love how brendan o'brien i've tried to do this a few times myself i don't have a lot of the time brendan o'brien has with his projects sometimes (laughs) you know because he'll have two months with a band whereas i'll oftentimes have three or four weeks but he'll i like how he gets in there with the band and you know has a guitar or has a synth or has something and he has a microphone and they're going over ideas like like he's the new member of the band like that's super mm. admirable to me and i yeah i love the guy and his mixes are some of my favorite ever especially his amberlin record and his mastodon record mm. and every, yeah. every very very cool any stuff. pearl jam stuff too sounds amazing very cool uh how about and you can't talk about the health record? Uh, your favorite record of uh, recent times and what inspires you about it? The newest, uh, like Snarky Puppy stuff. Hmm, I don't know them. Snarky Puppy is a, I'm not sure if it's the newest, but uh, they're a large jazz ensemble, and hmm. so they have like four guitar players two drummers, a percussionist, three synth players, synth bass, a bass, like trumpets. It's just just massive sound and very retro inspired, but uh, I've never been like a real jazz guy, but Mm. these guys are killing it in the jazz scene. Snarky Poppy. They're really good. Nice. I will have to check that out. So the last question is, uh, what have you been working on? Um, Lately, I've been... Finishing up the Loathe record, it's difficult to mix because all the songs are in dro- drop E. Wow. And then one song is in an octave below drop C. So it's uh, it's tough to get it to sound as aggressive as I like and be clear and everything but it's coming together okay okay okay. let's let's talk about this what did you do to get the guitars to take that tuning well we tried a few things um i had purchased a fender six oh yeah yeah the the great great guitar that we used that a lot on the cure record yeah i saw him using it live actually recently um I, i got his fender six and then i put a uh a JB that fits into a single coil s- slot uh, in there to get more of the you know, humbucker crunch. And that was going good. It was keeping the tune well because it's playing the notes it was set up to play. But somewhere along the line, one of the guys picked up this, you know, cheap Dan Electro U2 in the studio. And it's a baritone. But you know, the, as you know, the body. I know, I know, the, I know that one. Yeah, made of plastic, so mm-hmm. there's no almost no body to the tone of it. But these guys are trying to get a lot of this like springy twang, and nothing's twangier than like those lipstick pickups and the plastic body. So we bought thicker gauge baritone strings, tuned it down to drop E. It held the tuning, and so we tracked the heaviest 
like metal record I've ever done using a Dan Electro <laughs> guitar. <laughs> wow, that's something. And it actually sounds very clear. So that is very cool. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Um, what else have you been working on? Um, earlier this year, I finished up the Capsize record that just came out, um, and that seems to have done pretty well. And then right now, I'm working with a guy named Jason who has a band. He was actually the former vocalist for uh, Becoming the Archetype. This project's called Death Therapy. And back to the MIDI drums thing, we've been doing all MIDI drums for this one because we've been going after like a old Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, uh, you know, Power Man 5000, like that kind of early hmm, 2000s yeah. industrial metal techno kind of thing. So... The drums don't need to sound real, so we've been going after that sound and even using some old like Depeche Mode samples and things like that with like the and actually it's it's just a two piece band. There's only a drummer and a bass player, so all the guitar tones on this record are just the bass an octave up with delay, you know, spreading it out and it's gonna be cool. It sounds really awesome right now, so I'm I'm happy for that to be done soon. Uh, that's gonna be out on solid in oh yeah, solid state records sometime early next year. So that's what I'm doing exactly. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.